0: 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.
1: Hey everybody, if you want to tell the world something or sell the world something, head on over to Squarespace because they're going to help you build the website of your dreams. Say you want to sell some custom merch. Well, you can set up your online store, whether you sell physical digital, or service products, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. So go to squarespace.com stuff right now, and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff, and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace?
0: Hey, everybody. I don't know if you've heard, but we have a book coming out. Finally, finally, after all these years, it's great, it's fun, you're gonna love it. It's called Stuff You Should Know, colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things.
1: Yep, and it's 26 jam-packed chapters that we wrote with another guy named Nils Parker, who's amazing and is illustrated amazingly by our illustrator, Carly Minardo. And it's just an all-around joy to pick up and read. Even though we haven't physically held in our hands yet, it's like we have, Chuck, in our dreams so far.
0: I can't wait to actually see and hold this thing and smell it. And so should you. So pre order now. It means a lot to us. Uh, the support is a very big deal. So pre order anywhere books are sold.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, and welcome to Pump Up the Volume. I'm Josh. There's Chuck. Jerry's out there somewhere. Raging Against the Machine, and this is, um, well, we'll just say it's it's
0: stuff you should know. (laughs) I love it. When I sent you this this research, you were like, the first thing you said was pump up the volume. (laughs) Sure, man. This is such a great movie. (laughs) You know what's funny is I didn't think about that once until you said that, and I was (laughs) like, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was all about piracy and radios.
0: Yeah, I love that movie. I just hadn't seen it, and I don't know, I don't think probably since then.
1: It has a really, uh, it has a good soundtrack. It has Bad Brains and Henry Rollins yeah. doing Kick Out the Jams, the yeah. MC5 song. It also has probably the best Soundgarden song of all time, Heretic. Uh
0: eh, well, it's tough to call for me as a Soundgarden nut, but yeah, good song. It is a good song. Which one's better than that? I like a lot of Soundgarden, so. Yeah? I, I have probably 20 tied for first songs. Okay, but is that one of them? Yeah, it's up there.
1: Oh, thanks for that.
0: I love it. <laughs> it's great. I mean it is. I love all Soundgarden songs. Sure.
1: Yeah, I guess I do too now that I think about it. <laughs> I think it could have had something to do with Chris Cornell's voice to an extent. Oh
0: man. R.I.P.
1: Yeah, for real.
0: I used to joke about the <clears throat> imagining the first time that he like sung in the shower when he was thirteen or something.
1: <laughs> he was like, Wow. <laughs> like, oh,
0: I think I know what I'm gonna do for a living.
1: Yeah, exactly. Shower. <laughs> So we're, we're talking about Pump Up the Volume and Chris Cornell right now because this episode is about pirate radio. And specifically, it's about the British pirate radio invasion of the 60s that I had no idea about. I've never seen that movie um, Pirate Radio, but I intend to now. Have you seen it?
0: I haven't seen the movie, but I was acquainted with the, the story somehow. I think I might have seen a short documentary or something about the Caroline and— uh, Really, really cool stuff.
1: It is, which is why we're going to talk about it in this episode. Yeah. But um, I just found the whole thing, I don't know if mind-blowing is the right word, but certainly deeply interesting. And I think it's cool because it's one of those, like, pieces to the jigsaw puzzle of history, at least, like, rock history, that you didn't even realize, like, you didn't didn't have, you know? And by you, I mean me.
0: Yeah, and here's the thing is there were other pirate radio stations all around the world, and there always have been since there's been radio and restrictions on radio. But Hey, and as long as there's Rock Chuck, there always will be. <laughs> That's true, but the, the UK version was sort of the most celebrated and the most famous, I think, obviously why they made a movie about it. And one of the reasons is because the, uh, the man whose thumb they were under was the BBC, which is a mm-hmm. big deal.
1: It was a big deal because here in the United States, and I know um, ahoy to all of you listeners outside of the United States. Here, you're, you're like, well, yeah, we we this is what it was like um, in the United States. It's, the radio spectrum has always been very free, or it it was intended to be very free, to where um, there was a multiplicity of voices and you could say a lot of stuff. It got a little stodgy, and it was kind of stodgy from the outset. But for the most part, it wasn't just one monolithic organization that controlled all of the radio waves. That's just not how it's been in the States. And in places like the UK, that's how it was basically right out of the gate. They said, um, you know, we this is a really valuable tool. You can really shape people's minds with this. So we're going to leave it specifically under government control. Look, we'll provide a bunch of different stuff, not everything you want, Um, But a lot of stuff, especially if you're a stodgy, conservative, old establishment type, you're going to love what we're pumping out. But um, the point is is it's too important to just kind of let anybody come along who has the money for a radio license to just set up a radio station. That seems absurd. Only the the loony colonies would do something like that.
0: Yeah, so the BBC had a a very vice-like grip, like you were saying, for – Geez, about forty something years, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, the '60s come along, and like so many other things in America and the UK, uh, kids that were born of these uh, World War II, uh, I guess you would call them baby boomers, or (laughs) or boomers, the babies of those boomers, were rock and roll kids. You know, they grew up seeing Elvis and the Beatles on television, Mm -hmm. and they were not square like their parents were and they had different ideas than their parents did and this was the case in england in the 1960s when the bbc was you know rock and roll was was a thing and they were like we're not playing this this devil's music they probably didn't say that I, that was more american <laughs> if you but if you well, it was certainly
1: controversial um songs that seemed to us like I mean, like, you just hear them on an elevator today. Like, they were highly controversial (laughs) back then, (laughs) you know? And, like, there was genuinely nowhere on the radio in the UK for you to reliably turn to to hear this stuff. You had to go to, like, a club um, to hear them. And those were few and far between. And then if you um, were lucky enough, you might be able to occasionally dial in Radio Luxembourg, which played some of these, like, pop hits, but they were also—it was still largely controlled by a few record labels, so it didn't just—they didn't go deep. It was still, like, whatever new big band they were trying to promote. But it was still way cooler than anything the BBC was promoting. The problem is, is the reception was certainly spotty. You ever been to Luxembourg? I i have not. I may have passed through it and not known it because yeah. I blinked, <laughs> but I don't believe I have.
0: It's so under the radar. I flew out of there once. Uh, that's the only time I've been to Luxembourg is— flew home from Europe out of Luxembourg Airport. So uh, that's my only like I don't know anything about it as a place. It's it's interesting. It's like the Delaware they, of uh, of Europe. That's right.
1: <laughs> it may or may not exist. Yeah. So um that was pretty much the long and short of it. And the BBC didn't really didn't really care that the teenagers yeah. wanted more. They they just said no. They might have even said nine. At this point, you know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and this is where a gentleman comes in the picture that would really change everything. And his name is uh, Ronan, and I've heard Americans pronounce it O'Reilly. Yeah. It's spelled O, little accent, capital R-A-H-I-L-L-Y. And I heard him speak his name in court when they asked his surname, but he said it so quickly, it sounded like O'Donnelly. It sounded like a D, so it may just be, like, some weird, like, you know, Irish pronunciation or something that I don't know about. Sure. But we're going to say O'Reilly.
1: I mean, that's how, yeah, that's how I heard it, too. Um, but, yeah, so he sounded like Brad Pitt and Snatch. <laughs>
0: yeah, sort of. I couldn't understand him. I swear there was a D in there. But he was uh, he was a guy who uh, figured out that their jurisdiction over the airwaves, the BBC and the U.K. government's jurisdiction, stopped about five kilometers off the coast, uh, three miles here in the States. And he oh, said, yeah. and there were, he didn't invent the idea of planning a boat out there and broadcasting. Other countries were doing this kind of thing and exploiting this loophole already. But he said, this is, a, this is something we should do. The kids want their rock and roll. They want their MTV. We don't know what that is yet. And I'm going to bring it to them.
1: Yeah, so um, he, he actually took inspiration, like you were saying, there were some Scandinavian countries, specifically Sweden and Denmark, that had been home to pirate radio stations that were docked off of their coast. And for very similar reasons, too. There was a state monopoly on radio broadcasting at the time. And some people were like, uh, no, that's I, I want to broadcast what I want to broadcast. Right. And so they set up those shops, I mean, all the way back in the 50s. And I I actually ran across one in the United States to bring it on home that was operating in the 1930s, 1933. Um, And it had a call sign, R-X-K-R, and it was out of Panama, even though it was off of the coast of Long Beach. And I think, Chuck, I think, I think, we either talked about it in our Prohibition episode or we talked about it in... Our Who Owns the Oceans episode. Oh yeah. But it was it was originally one of those floating speakeasy casinos Doctor right. in International Waters. Totally. And they started to broadcast radio, pirate radio as well for a little while. So it had happened before. And there was actually, because of the success of the Scandinavian stations, there was kind of this mad rush in the UK to, to be the first to to see, I guess, um, and start broadcasting and, and Ronan O'Reilly Beat them all with uh what came to be known as Radio Caroline,
0: yeah, so he was sort of in a tight race with another guy named Alan Crawford mm-hmm. who had a project called uh his was going to be radio Atlanta, I think it was called Project Atlanta, nothing yeah. to do with Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta,
1: uh, Texas, from what I saw,
0: oh really, mm-hmm. I figured it was just a riff on Atlantic as in the ocean
1: no one of the one of the owners um was a uh from Dallas, I believe, is a radio man from Texas, and uh, for some reason he chose Atlanta after Atlanta, Texas.
0: I didn't know there wasn't Atlanta, Texas.
1: (laughs) I didn't either. Neither did the people who live in Atlanta, Texas.
0: So um, they're the Delaware of Texas. (laughs) That's right. So there was – I think O'Reilly got about a half a dozen investors because this is going to cost some money because you got to buy a ship. It can't just be a little dinghy or a a rowboat or anything like that. You have to get it.
1: It it takes a shipload of equipment.
0: Yeah. It takes a, and people to operate it and people to stay on it and stuff like that and meeting rooms. Mm -hmm. And so you got to have a legit ship. So um, Crawford for Radio Atlanta got the Mi Amigo and O'Reilly got a passenger ferry, a Danish ship uh, called the MV Frederica. Uh, Mm -hmm. They each renamed them uh, Atlanta and then Caroline, respectively. Apparently, Caroline after Caroline Kennedy, because he, as lore goes, saw a picture, O'Reilly saw a photo of little Caroline and little John Jr. dancing in the Oval Office. And he was inspired by that because he was like, this is what we're trying to do. Like, sort of, uh, you know, you're not allowed to dance in the Oval Office, yet they're doing it. And we're not allowed to broadcast rock and roll music because the government says so. So... You know, I'm going to name after Caroline. Very cute name. It is very cute.
1: Um, So that's the name that he went with. And I'm glad that he was one of the... I'm glad he was the one who who made it first because he was the one who was doing it, I guess, as, as purely as you would expect somebody to be doing with, like, a constant rotation of DJs operating 24 hours a day, legitimately broadcasting from the ship. And that was not Radio Atlanta's model at all. They were compiling shows or days worth of shows in the studio back in London, recording them and then sailing (laughs) it out to the ship. It was really, it was also, I mean, there was like banking concerns that were invested in it. It was, it was illegit as far as pirate radio goes from the outset. So I'm glad that they, they weren't the ones who made it to market first.
0: Yeah. So uh, Radio Caroline, their slogan was your all day music station because of that 24 seven format. Mm-hmm. And, which was
1: new in 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 and of itself, right?
0: Yeah, I mean as far I mean as far as playing music, absolutely. And yeah. they just within a few months I think they launched in on Easter Sunday 1964 with the Stones tune It's all over now. Perfect. I saw it Not Fade Away. I saw It's all over now actually.
1: I saw in The Guardian and then one other source not fade away and then i I, I also saw um all over now, but I, I saw both I en- saw, in enough legit places that i 'm i honestly don 't know
0: yeah, I saw not fade away was the station 's theme song, so <sighs> who knows <laughs> mm-hmm. and then they got someone else to compose an original theme song mm-hmm. because I think they didn 't want to keep playing that, but at any rate, they launched. And it didn't take long until they had a larger audience than all of the BBC stations combined.
1: That's wonderful.
0: And they quickly merged. I think if it goes from Easter Sunday, they merged in July just a few months later with Radio Atlanta. I guess they figured they had uh, just more power together. And then the Mi Amigo, they became uh, the Caroline North and the Caroline South broadcasting from two different places.
1: Yeah, which covered almost all of the UK, but not all of it. There was some southwestern parts that just didn't didn't get it from either ship. The Delaware. They had a, they had, <laughs> they had a pretty good coverage of of the Isles for sure with those two ships, and then eventually Radio Atlanta went under as an organization, and Radio Caroline was able to take over both of those ships. So they had that. They had. I mean, for a pirate radio station, they. They had a lot of power behind them, for sure.
0: Yeah, and I don't, I mean, we haven't said the obvious. They were called Pirate Radio because they were operating on ships in the ocean. And flouting the law. Yeah, so it was sort of doing double duty there with the name. Yeah, there's actually
1: some really great pieces out there on the internet about this, this era. Yeah. Um, and one of them I saw was, they said, like, from the moment they started broadcasting, it was basically immediately called Pirate Radio, for some reason, those two words together just seem—they just strike something in you, you know.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. And there's there's lots of cool documentaries too, um, in addition to the the narrative film, which obviously takes a lot of liberties, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But a lot of cool short documentaries and even longer documentaries.
1: You want to uh, take an ad break? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, True Pirates. <laughs> right. We'll be right back, everybody.
2: John, 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 John.
1: All right, we're back. Hopefully, those were the bossest ads you've ever heard.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they were very subversive <laughs> yep. and, and flouting uh, uh, anti establishment. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, um, Radio Caroline's up and running, and when I said earlier, Chuck that there was like a um, it, it represents a piece of the puzzle of rock and roll history even pop culture history that I didn't realize was I didn't know existed but when I said that I meant this this specific group of pirate radio stations but really radio Caroline from what I can tell had such a pronounced effect on music that they they actually managed to reshape it and rechange it because the BBC was basically saying we're only playing stodgy stuff your parents like, like literally square records. That's how square the music we're playing is. <laughs> um, we, w- w- there's no place for you bands to play the music you want to play. So you have to make, your, make music that we will play on BBC. And all of a sudden now there was this really potent outlet that hadn't existed before. And those bands that had started out kind of prim and BBC ready were now able to start taking acid like on a daily basis (laughs) and really explore like their musical um, abilities and try new things. And they knew that there was a good chance that it would get played on Radio Caroline or some of the other pirate radio stations. And in that, it actually shaped... Psychedelia. It's shaped the psychedelic music scene um, by just giving it a place to start.
0: Yeah. I mean, they had to fill, it says here, about 2,500 songs each week because they were going 24 7. That and, was each DJ that had to. Yeah. And that's a lot of music. And, yeah. you know, you got to, you didn't want to just play the same stuff over and over. They wanted to follow and they could follow the American top 40 sort of system where you, you play the hits and you play the hits a little more, but then you also try and break new music. And uh, this House Works article says that the Moody Blues were mm-hmm. a band that kind of came directly out of pirate radio as far as being broken on pirate radio, starting to do experimental stuff and mm-hmm. that wouldn't obviously get played on the BBC anywhere.
1: But having started out as playing music that would get played on the BBC and then being allowed to kind of alter to what they wanted to be. Totally and um one of the f- the the song i saw that's widely considered the first pirate radio hit of um the swing 60s in in the uk is uh, tom jones it's not unusual <laughs> yeah
0: good song <laughs> now that is
1: unusual <laughs> as far as facts go uh you think that makes the Carlton dance one degree removed from British <laughs> 60s pirate radio. I would not have seen that connection before.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you hear it's not unusual. It's a cool song, and Tom Jones was a cool dude. Yeah. But it definitely feels way more square to my ears now than than early psychedelia.
1: Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, sure, the whole thing is— Uh, from front to back about uh, smoking hash and how much Tom Jones loved his hash. (laughs) But still today, it seems a little tame for sure.
0: Yeah, he was so great. He's Welsh, right? I don't know, probably. I think he's Welsh. Okay, we'll go with that. So uh, one of the big DJs, and they had a, a whole rotation of DJs that all loved what they did, and most of them went on to be DJs for life. Some stayed with Radio Caroline for life. Um, I guess that's the sort of spoiler, is that they're still around today, and you can listen to them on the internet and on the radio, even though they have a legal license now. But I was listening to their their stream. Uh, you can stream sort of the classic version, which is music from back then, and it's just fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah. It's like a good WFMU playlist, if you ever remember we were on FMU for a while, the classic oh, I do. New Jersey Freeform radio station that's so great. They clearly had some space to fill, too. Yeah, so I encourage you to go listen to to Radio Caroline and check it out. But uh, one of the the more famous DJs to come out of that scene was Tony Blackburn, Mm -hmm. and he was a fan of Radio Luxembourg just as a listener and saw an ad in the NME, uh, New Musical Express, still a great magazine.
1: Sure. It's been around since the 50s, I read.
0: Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, That and Melody Maker are two of the best. And he basically applied to this for this job, got it, and uh, became one of the more popular DJs on on that ship.
1: Yeah, he was one. Um, I mean, kind of going down through history. Pete Tong uh, started out on pirate radio. Uh, he's a very well known DJ, and supposedly also, um, I think we mentioned him in the Cockney rhyming slang episode. Where where everything's gone all wrong, it's gone Pete Tom. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we definitely did because we talked about that. It's better than nothing, I think. Um, And then there was another uh, very famous DJ. Um, His name was... Jazzy Jeff? Yeah. he's I'm the DJ, he's the rapper. (laughs) Remember that? They had to explain it to everybody on one of their... uh, So uh, the guy I'm thinking of is DJ Andy Archer. Okay. And um he is a, a very well known DJ, has been for many, many years. I think he started out in the sixties. I don't know if it was on Caroline or Radio London, one of the competitors, but he um is known to have coined the term Anorak. And in the UK I didn't know this, but Anorak is slang for like a super nerdy obsessive fan, basically. Uh-huh. Um and the the term was coined because Andy Archer um Called some of the nerdy male radio pirate radio fans who were like so obsessed with the whole thing they would actually hire boats to take them out to the the ships that were um, broadcasting. They would normally wear like anoraks because of the weather. So an anorak apparently gets its its origin from pirate radio too.
0: Well, and that's one of the cool things about the early days of pirate radio is they didn't have ratings to depend on. Mm-hmm. They got their feedback from. Uh, kind of like us from from hearing from people, we we get it via email and stuff like that. But they got bags and bags of mail, just uh, like us. Just like us, um, people would stop by their office, uh, like you said, on by boat. It just has that's just like us. That's happened to us before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even though it's you know not encouraged any longer, and especially sure. now during the lockdown, right? There's no one here. Um, but people would show up. They would send them gifts. Uh I think Blackburn was the one that said he would tell listeners that when he got back to land and he would drive away in his little sports car that he would give away just you know records he would give away 45s and this obsolete vinyl and he said it would take him an hour and a half to get out of town just cuz he was mobbed by kids on the street looking for looking for him looking to get a piece of him looking to get one of those records it was like mm-hmm. true true fandom
1: Um I read uh I read something about Tony Blackburn that apparently he once did a live performance of Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree uh-huh. um, in a cage full of lions with a lion tamper. a very psychedelic song. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Uh, why? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's just Tony Blackburn. That's the impression I have.
0: Uh, another DJ was an American named Mike Pasternak. Mm-hmm. Uh, his DJ name was Emperor Roscoe. And he still sort of apparently wears this skull and crossbones baseball hat. And I get a feeling all these people, like, this is their cred. They still really hang their hat on this experience as, like, these rock and roll mavericks from the 60s.
1: Right. That's the impression I have, too. But the thing is, is, like, you know, I think most people assume that these ships were just, like, party boats, basically. And from what I can tell, that's just not the case at all, that they were— Largely staffed by professional acting DJs, even though a lot of them were not professionals at all. Like you said, it was it Blackburn that that had he he answered an ad in the New Musical Express.
0: Blackburn did Pasternak the American was uh, he had a little bit of experience with uh, military radio on an aircraft yeah. carrier, right? And, two years, yeah, and thought he brought sort of a polish that the British guys didn't have. Uh, he said they didn't have the technique yet, but um. Yeah, by all accounts, they were pros. They weren't like – in the movie, I think they really play it up as just sort of a big party barge.
1: Sure. Which, I mean, that's a movie kind of thing to do for sure.
0: And they were allowed apparently only two beers a day. <laughs> and uh, they could play cards. They could watch TV. They could sunbathe. And I think uh, Pasternak said occasionally some some women would come aboard for a cup of tea. So, uh, you know, we'll <laughs> – I don't know if that story is fully true, but <laughs> I
1: don't I don't either. I think they actually did have tea with some of the Anorex that showed up. Probably so. So um so we've got Radio Caroline, it's operating, it's going pretty well. Um but there was a an incident that went down um I think in nineteen sixty six, maybe, maybe sixty-seven. Um, which kind of goes to show you, like, Radio Caroline is this huge smash success, and it's allowed to operate um, flouting the laws of the U.K. um, for a few years before the U.K. government finally said enough is enough. And um, they passed something called the Marine Broadcasting Offenses Act. And supposedly the thing that really prompted them to take action was that there was a hostile physical takeover of one of the pirate radio stations, um, there was a, a radio station called Radio City that had taken over a set of abandoned sea forts that were jutting out of the North Sea, and there was a, a disagreement between a Radio Atlanta owner, the chairman of it, and the guy who was running Radio City, Ridge Calvert, and the other guy, Lord Smedley. Um, shot Reg Calvert with the shotgun when Reg Calvert came to negotiate with him about getting, a, I think, a transmitter back or something like that. And the fact that, like, these guys were now physically invading one another's ships and were shooting one another um, really kind of brought home that, the the you know, the fact that everybody had been calling it pirate radio for a while made it seem pirate but not in the good kind of pirate, you know what I mean? Like the real-life kind of pirate thing all of a sudden, and, and that— force the British uh, government's hand.
0: Yeah, I think what I saw was that Smedley was trying to uh, trying to get another merger going and just grow this empire with Radio City and offered up this transmitter to Calvert. It didn't work. Calvert didn't want to pay him for it. And so Smedley literally sent, like in the dead of night, these guys to board the ship and get it back, like tr- right. true pirate style. Yeah. And Calvert didn't take kindly to that, so he threatened him, went to his house, and was met with a shotgun. I saw that
1: he was not the type to threaten anybody, um, but that the Smedley's housekeeper tried to keep uh, Calvert from entering, I guess, his study or his office or something. They got into a scuffle, and um, Smedley shot him with a shotgun. Yeah, and for...
0: got manslaughter. He you know, apparently claimed self-defense because— Uh, I don't know what the laws were like back then, but the guy did come to his house and he Mm -hmm. claimed he felt threatened.
1: Yeah, and so he was ultimately acquitted. But the the larger impact that it had on pirate radio in the UK is that Marine Broadcasting Offenses Act, which um, you could get up to two years in the pokey for that, not to mention all the fines. And um, one of the things that they really kind of, Pass this law on was not like oh these guys are actually shooting each other now we got to do something it was this idea that their broadcast could interfere with marine distress signals yeah and that is an ongoing long standing establishment government opposition to pirate radio that's typically what they go to the public with. Like, hey, you want to be out at sea trying to get help and some kids are spinning the who and nobody can hear you because your signal's being infringed on? We don't want that either. Let's all get rid of the pirate radio stations. But that doesn't seem to be the real reason why governments tend to oppose pirate radio. It's usually that they're protecting the interests of the corporations who have legitimate licenses and usually a lot more sway with the government than some kids who Got their hands on a German merchant vessel and started broadcasting, you know, 60s soul from it.
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, we'll get to America today, but that's that's exactly how they frame it today as well. Right. Is that you're going to get in the way of legitimate signals of in case of distress. Because, um, well, we won't go there yet. But uh, okay. O'Reilly keeps Radio Caroline going. Uh, his ship was seized by Dutch authorities, but he got it back. Um, He kept it going. There were some – I think George Harrison gave them, like, a substantial check to keep it going because he believed in their mission in the 70s. And Tom Jones chipped in a bunch of hash. (laughs) Of course he did, which is more valuable than money, as we all know. Uh, But both of the the boats, the uh, Caroline North and the South, had a couple of incidents. I think the Mi Amigo ran aground at one point and was, was repaired. And then the original Caroline, uh, I think, did a fire break out or did it sink?
1: No, sorry. So the Mi Amigo sank. The original Caroline, I don't know whatever happened to it. I could not find it. But I know for a fact that it wasn't the the original ferry, the the, um, MV Caroline that sank. It was definitely the Mi Amigo.
0: Well, the Mi Amigo must have two then because it ran aground and was fixed. Right, and, and then it sank, it sank later. Sank
1: it did. It had a little bit of bad luck. What cracks me up in this entire story is that there was a German vessel called the Mi Amigo, I know. <laughs> my friend in Spanish. It's a German merchant vessel. Oh wait, I, I think, don't understand. I
0: think the Caroline is a, is a museum now, so that one did survive, right?
1: No, the um, the Ross's Revenge. Oh, okay. So they they came up with another German ship the Ross Revenge, um, to replace the Mi Amigo. And that one eventually um, has been outfitted to be a museum, which I can't tell. They have a website, and it sounds like the last update was from 2014. And I don't know if it's actually open or not. If it is, they definitely need to update their website. But um, that's the plan, at least. I don't know if, like, they ran out of money or something like that.
0: Yeah, I I think there's a couple of different museums, but I would love to on our next UK trip, go check these places out. That'd be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to get back to the UK and Australia too, man.
0: Yeah, I think we hit even sort of loosely earmarked this year or next year for another international trip, and, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to happen.
1: That kind of fell through. <laughs> and also, sorry, everybody, I'm also excited to get back to New Zealand too.
0: Yeah, because didn't, we didn't get enough time there. Oh, wait, wait, and Canada. <laughs> well, we always love to get go to Canada. That's easy. Sure. Uh, Should we take another break? That's all the boxes.
1: Yeah, let's take a break. All right, maybe we'll go to Germany next time
0: too. I'd love to go to Germany. It's my homeland. Well, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. By the way, I said Germany was my homeland because I took German in high school and college, speak German and have been to Germany and love it. I'm not German in any way.
1: <laughs> what um Emily what's is. your what's your ancestry?
0: Uh it's fully like I, I did the DNA test. It's it's fully like UK Irish uh-huh. Sort of European, and then it said like one percent East African or something like that.
1: I got um, like two percent or point two percent. Yeah, it was like no point zero zero two percent Ashkenazi Jew. Oh, nice! And then I got I got two percent something uh, Neanderthal. This all checks out. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does for sure. So, so I'm celebrating both of my heritages.
0: <laughs> Shalom. Thank you. So back at you. I think is. The <laughs> yeah, back at you. Yeah. So um the US we've kind of overlooked the United States. They didn't have nearly the sort of uh I guess cultural revolution that the UK had as far as pirate radio goes. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had a few sort of operations here and there. The one that you were talking about uh there was this this preacher, Reverend Carl McIntyre. He was a fundamentalist who uh I think he broadcast from a ship for like 10 hours (laughs) until (laughs) there was a fire. (laughs) He worked so hard on it
1: for months, months. He thought he was going to be up and running in a few days, maybe a couple of weeks. It ended up taking him months to get this pirate radio ship ready. And he got it going and they shut him down in 10 hours. And we've talked about him before, actually, in our Fairness Doctrine. Yeah, Because that's the whole right. reason that he was operating from a pirate radio station is he went from being broadcast on, like, I think 600-something radio stations across the South and the Midwest. And he would preach, like, um, anti-communism. He said the Catholic Church was fascist. He said Billy Graham was an appeaser. Um, he was a real firebrand and also super political, too. And because of that Fairness Doctrine said... You have to have equal airtime for opposing viewpoints. He didn't he didn't do that. So he kind of brought the heat onto some of these stations that were worried about losing their license. They started to drop him. So he tried pirate radio for a minute and it, it didn't pan out very well for him.
0: He tried for six hundred minutes. <laughs> That's right. So um That's some fast
1: math there, Chip.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, it's pretty easy. <laughs> uh, where you see pirate radio in the United States, and it still continues today, in fact uh, there there was one study that said there are more pirate radio station uh, stations in New York on the FM band than there were legit stations.
1: Yeah, and that's been going on for a while. I saw late 80s, early 90s, there was a big boom in pirate radio. And like the epicenter seems to have been New York. It's because of Christian Slater. I think so. Or maybe they wrote the movie because of the boom. I don't know.
0: Well, a lot of them are out of Brooklyn. They're um, broadcast from rooftops. You know, you get a little equipment, you get an antenna, and and you're in business. And here's the deal with pirate radio in the United States and what's going on now, which is currently the FCC has, has uh, popped up, of course. And they used to, like the article said, play kind of whack-a-mole, trying to mm-hmm. knock these things back as they came up. But mm-hmm. I guess they thought it was such a problem, especially in New York, that the FCC has – and especially this current FCC – has stood up and said, "Nope, not going to happen on our watch, uh, and in January of this year, uh, the president signed the and I love it when they come up with a uh, an acronym that they actually really works. worked for this one. <laughs> they had to reverse engineer this one the mm-hmm. the Pirate Act preventing illegal radio abuse through <laughs> enforcement
1: <laughs> but also abuses in there, like stop abusing that radio center
0: Yeah, but you know, they needed an A.
1: For sure. I'm I'm saying, like, hats off to that, for, to them for that one. It that couldn't was, be
0: radio amusement through enforcement. I,
1: <laughs> they actually, at least they used all the letters yeah. from all the words. I hate it when they just slip a, a couple of words and they're like, nobody's going to notice. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, that's lazy.
1: So, um, the problem with the Pirate Act is this. It takes uh, already existing FCC laws that, allow the FCC to kind of go after pirate radio stations and fine them. I saw um, you're looking at fines of something like $10,000 a day, uh, typically with a maximum of about $75,000 for a total fine for operating an illegal pirate station. That's that's bad. I mean, most people that's who are operating pirate stations d- do so, as as we'll talk about in a minute. Because they don't have yeah. the money to, to run a legit station and pay all the fees and all the application fees and the license fees and all that stuff. So that is significant. What the Pirate Act does, it takes all those existing laws and just says, you're that 75000 max fee? Let's up that to $2 million. Yeah. And the whole point of that is to specifically intimidate people out of out of pirate radio, out of broadcasting pirate radio. And that that's... That's terrible, especially coming from an FCC that's led by a former telecommunications lobbyist and the guy who presided over the end of net neutrality. That's a that's some sour grapes right there if you ask me.
0: Yeah, and the whole deal with pirate radio these days, especially out of New York, is they're not just like spinning tunes for fun. I'm sure there are some that some do of them that. Are. Yeah. But a lot of it is um are people starting these very small small operations that maybe broadcast over their neighborhood because they are an underserved community as far as radio programming goes right and they will speak in their native language to people who are listening in their native language and they are getting news out to people in their native language and these are communities that don't that aren't represented on the on the the regular fm spectrum and there's a big argument to be made that this is a almost like a public service in a way to these underserved yes. communities.
1: It absolutely is and that's what radio that, that's what radio has been this has been intended for since the inception of it at least in the United States it's a and in the UK too it's meant to be a public service um For for everybody. The thing is, is in the U.S., we've long valued a multiplicity of different voices, of competing ideas and thoughts, of different music. I mean, even if you are talking about pirate radio stations um, that are just playing music, they're not doing, you know, anything. There's no, like, you know, community discussion or anything like that. The music they're playing is probably stuff you're not going to hear anywhere else on the radio. Yes. And there's definitely something that's lost when, you know, more and more radio stations become uh, homogenized further and further. Then all of a sudden, it's kind of like the radio equivalent of um, that strip mall that you could go to Topeka or Miami or Seattle and find the exact same stuff in the exact same stores with almost the exact same layout to where it's all the same. That's what pirate radio represents. Or even if you take the pirate out of it, that's what a multiplicity of different um, community radio stations represents, uh, th- the lack of homogeneity that kind of sucks the life out of everything. That in and of itself makes them valuable and that they shouldn't be aggressively pursued Or, Chuck, there's one other thing, too. If you are going to aggressively pursue this, then also make an avenue for legitimacy rather than just try to stamp them out or else it really makes you question what the ultimate motive is.
0: Yeah, and here's the thing. Like, it'd be very easy to sit back and say, well, you've got the Internet. You can have an Internet radio station. You can have a podcast. It's more democratized than ever before to get your voice out there. Uh, which is true in a way, but that's also a very privileged thing to say when Mm -hmm. you just assume that someone has the money to afford the Internet. Uh, Yeah, just
1: go get a new iPhone. What's your problem? Yeah,
0: exactly. Like, just download the app. It's that easy. Um, Radio.
1: (laughs) I don't understand how you're not getting
0: this. (laughs) Radio is free, and you can can buy a radio. You probably have a radio if you're one of these people in an underserved community, but if you don't, you can get one at at a thrift store for $5, that picks up the FM and AM spectrum. And right. you don't have to play, pay monthly fees. You don't have to pay internet fees. And it is a true democratized voice for the people who can't afford to get it otherwise. Right.
1: So, like, I didn't know
0: anything about this
1: as, as far as, like, the Pirate Act. I didn't know that existed until we started researching this episode. But it's very clear that this is a, to, this is a law that's creating outlaws, where there shouldn't right. necessarily be outlaws. There's no inherent problem with um, pirate radio, like from what I've read. Um, and granted, it was on a pirate radio organization's blog, Prometheus Radio Project, but they said there very you can find very few instances of pirate radio stations actually interfering right. with uh, other stuff. But you can very easily find major corporate radio stations interfering with stuff. And very frequently, say, in, there's a, there was a, an instance in the 90s where North Perry, Florida's airport had to change frequencies because the commercial radio station that was interfering with their frequency that they were using to communicate with airplanes, they wouldn't change their, their frequency. Um, so the airport had to. Um, You don't find that with pirate radio stations. And from what I saw, there's a lot of self-policing that goes on in the community because you don't want to infringe on somebody else's broadcast because that means that their broadcast is going to infringe on your broadcast.
0: Yeah, you want your own digits. Mm -hmm. Uh, And America, like we said before, um, to reiterate, they're standing behind the same thing the BBC did, which is it can interfere with sharing of vital public safety information. Right. And it's just... That's such hooey, like if a someone dropped a dirty bomb on New York City, they're sure the radio stations might issue some sort of public safety alert. But I guarantee you, so would the pirate radio stations, and they would do so in their language <laughs> That's true,
1: you know that's right, yeah, because there's a lot of um, a lot of evidence that pirate radio stations serve immigrant communities because they have like kind of this cultural tie to. Um, radio as a technology. So when they come over here to the United States, they, are, they expect to get their information from radio.
0: Yeah, and they wouldn't, like, the Twin Towers fall. I guarantee you pirate radio stations weren't like, we're just going to keep spinning the tunes, you know? I'm sure they did like every other broadcast and TV show and radio show in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they ceased their programming and started handing out vital information.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I can't prove I'd it, like-
0: but... Uh, I- I can't imagine that they did otherwise.
1: Um, I like what you did there, too. You um, <laughs> like They're like, well, what are you going to do? I mean, pirate radio interferes with stuff. You're like, oh, yeah, what are you going to do if there's a dirty bomb in New York? <laughs> you just threw it right back in the FCC's face. I don't even know what beautiful. a dirty bomb is. <laughs> the thing is, is from, from, this, from what I've seen, small government conservatives and libertarians should be all over that Pirate Act. They should be very much up in arms about this and about the way that the FCC targets small illegal radio stations without offering like a legitimate path to legitimacy. And um, I would like to see that.
0: That's right. And by the way, I have an in-show correction. I, okay. I think I said that Preacher's boat caught fire. I don't think it actually caught fire. I think mm-hmm. it just started smoking because the antenna uh, feeder line interfered with another radio station. So, <laughs> jeez. Uh, Didn't actually catch fire when he was, because I thought the ironies of preaching fire and brimstone and it actually catching fire was too great. (laughs) You're right. God went, be quiet. It was just smoke.
1: So um, if you are interested in pirate radio, uh, The Verge did a whole series on it, really interesting in-depth stuff. And uh, yeah, you could also do, I, I ran across one called The Lot. It's, out of i think williamsburg and it's on a little lot in a shipping container of
0: course it is and it's like
1: um <laughs> all dj sets all the time but it yeah. sounded pretty great and they have a, a webcam of what you can see out the window it's just cute nice and it's just cozy in a way
0: yeah and again go check out and stream the radio caroline classic version mm-hmm. uh if you're into like just good playlist it's it's one of the best i gotta check that
1: out i didn't run across that That's so fun. thank you for that public service chuck <laughs> Um, you got anything else? Nope. Okay, well, uh, that's it for Pirate Radio for now. Uh, and um, that means it's time for Listener Mail.
0: This is called Hot Off the Presses. Just got this email, and it was just so heartwarming. I had had to share it. Uh, hey, guys, and Jerry. I love listening to the recent episode on soap. I consider myself a bit of a soap nerd because when I served at the Peace Corps uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal for three years, uh, late— 2000s, I guess, 2016 to 2019, Mm -hmm. late teens, uh, my main activity was training women's groups on how to start small businesses making and selling soap. Uh, We trained them on how to make all kinds of bar soap using local ingredients, shea butter, honey, mint, herbs. Uh, Teaching these women's groups about soap making is a really excellent way to improve their household financial security for a few reasons. First, you're always going to have a market for soap because everyone needs it. Secondly, there are a few barriers to entry to making soap. Uh, You don't need to be able to read or have fancy equipment. Uh, If you can measure, pour, and stir, then you can make it. And thirdly, because women in Senegal are responsible for so much of the daily chores in their homes, soap making requires only a little bit of time since much of the process is waiting for the soap to cure fully into a hard bar. And Mm -hmm. fourth, making soap is a great way to teach all the basics of starting a business. Uh, marketing, accounting, record-keeping, calculating unit costs, profit margins, making creative packaging. Once they master these skills, they can expand to other business opportunities.
1: And fifth, it smells really good.
0: <laughs> yeah, she said some of her fondest memories are her service, seeing the satisfaction on their faces as the lye and shea butter mixture spent ages stirring by hand, became real soap for them to sell and market. Uh, cool. I trained over 150 members, or uh, of more than five women's groups on soap making, and all of the groups continue to make soap and sell it for a profit today, uh, helping make their households more financially secure. Tell me they included a website. Uh, no, because it's a bunch of different groups, but it is. Oh, okay. it was from the Peace Corps, so you obviously want to support them. And that is from Grace E. Uh, Nagel. Thanks a lot, Grace E. Nagel. Um, we appreciate that. That was a,
1: that was great. Uh, that was a great email. She sent pictures. But also, we appreciate, um, oh, i we'll have to check them out. We'll, we appreciate uh, you, what you did over there in Senegal, too. Totally. Uh, if you want to let us know about something great you did in your life, like Grace E. did, you can send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom twice, and send it off to Podcast at iheartradio.com.